you're like, Sunday we'd be like, happy Easter. And everybody's like, happy Easter. And usually on Good Friday, everybody's like, Good Friday. <laughs> but tonight we're going we're gonna to worship. We're going to celebrate what Christ did for us. I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing. It's spectacular. It's the greatest news that there has ever been and that there ever will be, that God reconciled man to himself through the Son at the cross and that there is an eternal life that is within reach by faith we receive it. It makes all the different things going on in the world and all the stuff happening right now just seem lesser. We have an eternity to look forward to in Christ. It's so marvelous. And tonight we're going to look at the seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. And these seven statements, they're impactful. They're meaningful. They're powerful. And they meant something very significant when he spoke them in that moment. And they mean something very powerful and significant for you and me tonight. And so we want to look at those statements, and we'll look at, the, at them as we kind of go through his suffering, his passion on the cross. So each of these statements will play a part of the story. Now, these are Jesus' last words uh, as far as before he died. He, we know he was raised, and he was walking among us for 40 for 40 days, and he was teaching the disciples. And so it's not his last, last words, but it's his last words prior to the cross, his public last words in that sense where all the world's watching him be crucified. And when someone has their last words, typically they're significant, right? Typically you, you want to express them, you want to say something that you want remembered. And so Jesus makes a few of these statements that those who are there listening to should tune in. They should, they should really pay attention. The first statement comes out of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 through 38. And it's on the screen. You can read along as I read it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So the first statement that we see here is that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he is in these last moments of suffering, his first utterance, after being nailed to the cross and lifted up, his first utterance is one of forgiveness. Of forgiveness. I don't think that would be my first utterance. 
And I'm pretty sure it probably wouldn't be your first utterance. But here, Christ being lifted up, the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So who is he asking forgiveness for? Who is, Father, forgive them. Who is the them? Who is he asking the Father to forgive? Maybe it's uh, the one who came and betrayed him with a kiss in the garden. Maybe it was the disciples. Father, forgive the disciples who abandoned him and ran off and were hiding. Maybe it was the one during the trial who hit him or the one who spat on him or the ones who maligned him with false testimony. Maybe it was those who would slap him and hit him and pluck out his beard. Maybe it's those who would further strike him and mock him and then scourge him. Or those who would put a twisted crown of thorns on his skull and press it down onto his head. Or maybe he was saying, Father, forgive those who had nailed him to this very cross. Or maybe for those who have yet to be born. Those who would live separate from God, either out of ignorance or out of blatant defiance, living apart from him, living as they would want to live their own life in rebellion. The answer is yes. <laughs> he, he was asking Father to forgive all of that, to forgive all of that. We see Jesus on the cross. The first thing he says is, Father, bring forgiveness. Forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't realize that he is the Son of God, the King of glory, the one who has come to bring them forgiveness and reconciliation, and the one that they should be worshiping and revering, they are crucifying. But this is as it should be, as the Father has set this in motion, and the Son has willingly come to do this, to bring forgiveness. So Father, forgive them. The cross meant to kill Jesus is what Psalm 85 talks about this, it says this in Psalm 85, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other at the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss. He's bringing peace to man, forgiveness for you, for me, for those that or in this narrative that we're reading, the stage is set. The stage is set for redemption. And that first utterance, forgive them. They know not what they do. The second utterance we read comes out of Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. And it says this, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And us. I like that. He's like, and while you're at it, get me down too. Yeah. Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, 
you will be with me in paradise. The second thing is this assurance of rescue, of salvation to this criminal who looks at Jesus and realizes this really is the Son of God. This is the one. And I am up here being crucified for what I deserve, what I have done. Like, I am up here justly. He is not. He is sentenced to die. He does not deserve this. And he points out to the other criminal there, he says, don't you fear God? We're, we're getting what we deserve, but this man is not. And he asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise. For the Jews, paradise and Sheol, what we would call hell, were close in proximity. The two are separated by a great chasm. They're down in the earth, and, and Jesus talks about it when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus when, when they both die. The, the rich man went to Sheol, but Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham. And that's paradise to the Jews. They would think this is paradise. In between was this great chasm. So those suffering in Sheol could see those in paradise, and those in paradise are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the chosen one of God to come and bring victory, to bring release from this, to be in his presence for all eternity. So Jesus would descend after his death into paradise, and this criminal would be there with him. Paul says the one who ascended is the very one who descended and preached victory to the captives. So every soul would see the fulfillment of the promise of God. Imagine that. From, from the very beginning, when God the Father sent the Son, and the Son came, and all the promises of the Old Testament prophets saying, one's coming, one's coming, one's coming, those in paradise are like waiting, and Jesus arrives, and he says, I have done everything. And he takes the keys of death and and. And he has victory over sin and death. And and here he's in paradise preaching victory. This is the paradise he's telling the, the robber. You're going to be with me. You will be with me this very day. At the moment of death, one thief would be in paradise because of his faith and the other in Sheol. For us, what does that mean? As long as there's breath, there's hope. As long as there's life, there is hope. God responds. We see here, God responds to the heart of faith. There's nothing more that that criminal could have done. He's nailed to a cross. All he can do is believe and speak to Jesus. Remember me. I believe. I have faith. Romans chapter 10, verses uh, 9 through 13. Paul writes, because If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. 
what hope we have. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So Jesus' second statement to the thief is, you will be with me in paradise. It's by faith that he is saved. Which moves us to his third statement. We find it in John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is a beautiful moment. It's, it's a hard thing. Imagine being Mary. This is your baby. This is the, the one that was prophesied by the angel. The Holy Spirit overcame her, overshadowed her. Has, she has Jesus. She watches him grow. She nurtures him. And then he becomes an adult, and then she sees him in his ministry. Like, this is, this is her, her son. And now he's beaten beyond recognition, and he's bleeding, and he's nailed to a cross, being spurred and, and, and treated like a common criminal, and just all of this going on. And she sees him there. I mean, imagine the anguish. And yet Jesus is concerned about her. He's concerned for her. He sees his mother, Mary, standing there with John, and he says, woman, here is your son. And he says to John, here is your mother. Christ's care for Mary at this moment of, this, of his passion, like that's amazing. It's amazing to think that he's, he's suffered this much already, and yet he still is thinking of the needs of of her who will be left behind. Even, I mean, you'll say, well, he's going to be resurrected, so he'll be back. But no, he's going to ascend. He, I mean, Jesus knows the plan. So in this moment, he's caring for his mother. He's like, I will be gone, and one needs to care for my mother. He's thinking about, about her in this moment. At the moment of suffering, he says, Woman, here is your son, pointing to John. And so he's looking at these needs. God sees all of our needs in all of our circumstances, even today. I mean, we think about that care, that level of care that Jesus has, even at the cross, he has that level of care for us today. He sees all of our circumstances. He sees all of our needs. Like he, he, He's not missing any of it. If Christ was full of care while he was dying on a cross, then how much more so today as he stands as our advocate before the Father, praying on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 25 says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning that he is standing before the Father, always bringing your needs to the Father, praying for you, thinking of, 
of your life. Not just the salvation that he came to bring, but the details of your life. Christ is concerned about those. God's concerned about those things. We see great care for Mary, and he has that great care for his people. His care for his people will never be finished. He will care for us eternally. Which leads us to this next statement. His fourth statement on the cross comes out of Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 48. And we read this out of the narrative. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. Jesus' full humanity is on display here. He's fully man and fully God. And he has been beaten. And he is bleeding. And if you think about this, this day, they dressed him up in several different robes. He wears a blue tunic, a blue robe underneath his, his clothing, which is that of a, a high priest. They parade him over to Herod, and Herod puts a white robe on him to mock him, but that is looking at his righteousness. Then they strip the white robe off of him, and they send him on to Pilate, and the soldiers mock him and beat him and, and do all kinds of vile things to him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, which is royalty, and then they strip that off of him. And in this moment, spiritually, Jesus puts on a black robe, the sins of humanity. And so we see here he is calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he has put on sin in this moment. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. He puts on our filthy rags. He, he clothes himself with sin. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that he takes on sin, it's he becomes sin. My God, why have you forsaken me? Because holy God is now pouring out wrath on sin. The relationship between the Father and Son in this moment has been broken. Think about it. Eternity passed to this moment. They've been in perfect unity. And in this moment, he takes on humanity's 
sins, puts on the black cloak and says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is pouring out his wrath. That is why he is forsaken. Now, there's something really interesting about this statement. When you hear song lyrics that are popular, and if someone starts the song lyric, you can usually finish it. So like if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You just finished it, didn't you? That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. Jesus is quoting a song. A good Jew would know this song. It's Psalm 22. This is the first verse of the song. And so we read in Psalm 22, verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And you would think at this moment, somebody would be like, hey, that sounds familiar. (laughs) I think I know this one. And it kind of just boggles my mind that no one does. Like, no one comes out and says, oh, Let's finish this song. Like, what is, why is he saying this? You're like, let, let's run through this. What is he really saying? No, instead they say, whoa, 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 hold up. He's calling Elijah. Let's see if Elijah shows up. But they should have finished the song. Why didn't they finish the song? That's what I think all the time. Verse 7, you read this. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. As they're thinking through the song that that Jesus starts by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they start thinking through Psalm 22, they would get to this point and they would look around and see all the mockers, all the people wagging their heads, open mouths at him, gawking, mocking. Verses 13 through 18 say this, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravaging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. At this moment, they should be seeing the redemption of Israel. They should be recognizing it. They should be like, hold up. <laughs> like, that fits everything we sing in temple in this psalm. Jesus is fulfilling this song. He is bringing salvation to the Jews, but also to all mankind. See, Messiah came to be accursed for us. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
This is why Messiah came, to become a curse for you, to become a curse for me, so that we may receive the promise of salvation. Messiah came to take our place and our punishment. Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a payment that's taking care of what is owed. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He put all the former sins on hold and he waits till this moment where the son willingly comes, becomes a curse, takes on sin, and then pours out his wrath. Jesus, the Messiah, came to take our place. So that takes us to his fifth saying on the cross, which comes out of John 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So here we see that it was to fulfill Scripture. So there's a prophetic word spoken about this moment of his death that I thirst fulfills a detail that God the Father said this will happen. Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Nothing Concerning our salvation and all the details, nothing is missed. Everything is fulfilled. Every little detail fulfilled. It must be. It must be. If, if one detail is missed, if one prophetic word falls short, then Jesus is not the Savior. But he fulfills them all. Every Word is meaningful. I thirst. You, we read that, you know, really quickly. Sometimes we think, well, why is that significant? It's significant because God the Father said they will give him sour wine to drink. And Jesus says, I thirst and fulfills that. God can be trusted with all the details of our lives. If he sees everything and nothing is missed and he has great care, we can trust him with all the details. He, we can trust him with all the details of salvation. You can trust him with all the details of your life, everything you're going through. You can say, Father, here it is. I, I trust you with it. Here's every detail. Nothing is missed from his sight. As Christ thirsts, he also identifies with us. I mean, think about it. He's fully man but fully God, and so he identifies with us. He takes on flesh, and he, and he identifies with us all the way to this great anguish, to this great suffering, and, and he understands all the physical needs that we will experience in life. He understands fully the, the, the highest joys and the lowest sorrows. So you say, oh, I don't know if God will understand. God understands. Why? Because he took on flesh and suffered, and walked in this life, in this world, everything. He identifies with us in everything. He understands. 
and you can trust him with all the details. So we see Christ in this moment identifying with us, fulfilling scripture and prophetic words spoken about him. And it speaks to the depth of his love. It speaks to the depth of his love that he would drink the cup of suffering, thinking of this in a spiritual sense. That he would go and say, I thirst, to take it and kind of put it with some other scriptures in the spiritual sense. He's talking about, I long to drink the cup that the Father has so that you and I could be saved. Look at these two passages. Matthew 20, 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Now this is the disciples saying, can I sit on your right hand and one on your left hand? And then he's just like, you don't know what you're asking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. They are not thinking of what we're talking about. (laughs) But Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I thirst for? that I come to drink? Matthew 26, verse 39, and also in verse 42, 39 says this, and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he says, if it's possible, take the cup of wrath. And then he comes back. This is in the garden against them. And he goes back. The guys are sleeping. He's like, guys, wake up. Come on, like a little longer. Stay with me. And then he goes back to pray again. And it says again for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. On the cross, I thirst. I thirst to take all of the wrath of God to drink the cup. There's only one person who can take the entire wrath of holy God, and that is holy God. Jesus drinks the cup. Nothing left. No wrath left to be poured out for sin. He takes it all. So here we see Jesus drinking this cup, which takes us to the very last statement. In John 19, verse 30 We read this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the sixth saying, did I say the last one? Sorry if I did. The sixth saying is, it is finished. Jesus accomplished all that he had set out to do. He had come to do this. To this was his purpose. Why was he born? So that he would die, so that he would be resurrected. He has come for this purpose to redeem man, to rescue us, to bring us back in relationship with holy God. What was lost in the garden, he is reversing through faith we can have new life. This is why he has come. It is finished. He has accomplished all that he set out to do. He's done everything that the Father has asked. All that was established in the new covenant. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, we read this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The sitting down is significant. It's saying there's no more work to be done. 
I will now sit down. So he has done everything. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He's done everything. Jesus has fulfilled all that was demanded by the law to rescue us. So this tells us that there's no sin too great that couldn't be atoned for by his blood. I mean, we'll sit, we'll sit and think at times, oh, God doesn't, if God really knew how bad I, oh, he knows how bad you are. Nothing's missed. He's seen everything. Paul would say, I'm the worst of sinners. And yet Paul marvels at the redemption he has in Jesus. There are times where we will come across those in this world that will say, you don't know what I've done. I don't deserve forgiveness. None of us deserve forgiveness. And yet he extends it. And he knows full well all that they've done. And he will save to the othermost. We'll say, but what about this or what about that? And we'll pile up great sins in our minds. And God says, yes, even those I can forgive. Through the blood of Christ, you can be made new. So there is no sin too great that couldn't be atoned for by his blood. So, so we have an assurance of salvation. We have an assurance that, that our sins are indeed forgiven. I want to read just a whole bunch of scriptures here to you about the power of the blood of Jesus. This is what, what his blood shed at the cross has accomplished. 1 John 1, 7. But, we walk, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. It cleanses us, gives us fellowship. Revelation 1, 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You are made free. Revelation 12, 4. It says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is the great dragon, Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, she might, he might devour it. Why do I have that one in this list? I'm like, where am I going? Anyway, Jesus saves from the great dragon who would devour. This is his coming and Satan trying to devour him. There's a reason I had it there. I'll figure it out. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. Romans 3.25 again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We have the payment, how? By his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. How were you purchased? By the precious blood of the Savior. 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul talking to the elders in Ephesus, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He obtained the church with his own blood. It is, we are his. We become his bride. Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 10.19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay, this one I'm going to pause on. You can enter into the holy place of God, into the heavenly sanctuary. You can bring your prayers and your petitions. You can come before the Father. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You have been sanctified by his blood. You can enter in by his blood. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here he offers the perfect sacrifice, his blood on the heavenly altar for sinners. These last two, Luke twenty two twenty. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant that we celebrate is through his blood. That's why we use juice. Because we're remembering the blood of Christ that created a new covenant and has done all of this for us. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood is our salvation on the mercy seat of God. Oh, how beautiful is that. He fulfills everything, and he is the perfect sacrifice. The last statement comes out of Luke 23. Verses 45 through 47. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus trusts the Father's plan and the Father's will, knowing that it will result in the resurrection. And he has this confidence, and he speaks with this confidence in his ministry. John 10, 18, he says this, No one takes it from me, that is his life. No one takes his life from him, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my father. The father says, lay your life down and you can take it up again. So he says, I will willingly do that. At the cross, he lays it down 
and he will be resurrected. He has full confidence in the Father. I trust my spirit into your hands, Father, because I know what's happening. I know where we're going here. Matthew 12, 40 says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking to the sign of his resurrection. I will lay down my life here on Good Friday. My blood will be spilt, my body broken, for the new covenant will be established, salvation will be given, and I will trust my soul into the Father's hands because I know it will result in resurrection, that it will move to the fulfillment of salvation, life, death, resurrection. So we can celebrate this Good Friday by saying the same thing that Jesus says here in this last statement. Father, into your hands we commit our spirits because we can have full assurance through faith that Jesus bore our sins and has created an open way for us to be saved. An open way. John 10, 9 says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. Jesus says, I am the door and you can find salvation through me. And in Hebrews, it says this of Jesus' body, chapter 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The curtain was torn when he died. The living way was open. The door was open. And John in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. A door standing open in heaven. Salvation is open. The door is open. Through Christ, all may come by faith. And so Good Friday, for us, is a beautiful time to celebrate what God has done. We remember all that Christ accomplished. And I honestly, in the short time that we were just talking together now, or you listening, I should say, (laughs) um, we haven't even scratched but the surface. We remember what Jesus has accomplished, and we worship. Good Friday is truly is a good Friday. And so we say, Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. So let's finish by singing one more song together, praying and singing one more song as we finish our service of remembrance this good Friday. Will you stand with me? I'll pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is nothing left undone. You fulfilled everything perfectly. You showed great care to do all of the Father's will, and in doing so, you showed what a marvelous love you have for man. And we, who have come by faith, know that that we are yours. You have purchased us. You have redeemed us. You have sanctified us. You have brought us near. You have given us a living way into the heavenlies, to the Father. We have new life by your life, death, and resurrection. So tonight, we remember your death 
and all the beautiful things it accomplished. And we're just in awe. So we, we pray, God, that you would be blessed as we sing as one people this song of praise and celebration. May you be blessed as we, your redeemed people, brought near by the blood of the Savior and by his death, worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.